Welcome back to Manhunting, in which Waypoint and friends are working through the filmography of Michael Mann and examining his themes of labor and craft, capitalist depression, and dudes rocking. Uh, as always, I am joined by Nextlanders Alex Navarro and beloved Philadelphia institution, uh, Dia Lucina. And today we're talking about Mann's 1999 follow-up to Heat, The Insider. Uh, the film matched him with Al Pacino once again, this time to tell the story of 60 Minutes' ill-fated expose of Big Tobacco by an interview with corporate whistleblower Jeffrey Wigand. Uh, while the film is dramatized, it is based on a well-documented case uh, with the cooperation of many of the principal players in the drama, making it a bit of an unusual left turn in man's career. Uh, it is the topical, ripped-from-the-headlines journalism drama. It is also one for which he was richly rewarded, uh, at least by critics, but not audiences. The film was a break-even proposition at theaters, uh, but its fall release garnered its seven Oscar nominations and it didn't win even one of them. Uh, so, gang, I think I said when we started this project, I feel like I can make a case for just about any man film being his best work and therefore being maybe one of the best American films ever. Uh, and watching this one right after Heat, The Insider, for me, like, The Insider is not a movie I think of usually when I think of, like, favorite Michael Mann films. But coming straight into this one, I'll be damned if I can't make a case for this maybe being his best, uh, especially because I feel like each one of his movies that we've discussed so far have like like one or two great scenes between actors that we can talk about. But The Insider, to me, feels like a feast if you are looking for a really good script with the most lavish casting possible. Uh, I'm curious where you all are at on this movie uh, before we dig into it uh, blow by blow. I think this was my favorite going into this project. Um, I think it still might be. I, like We still have the rest of the catalog to get through. But I think after having watched it again last night, I was just like, no, nah, this is it for me. This is this is man firing on all cylinders and specifically like Dante Spinotti firing on all cylinders. Um, and of course, everyone in the cast, like, you know, it just nails it. So, yeah, yeah I think I'm... I'm, I'm this is where I drop off with man. Like this is where I kind of, I drop off with film, honestly, in a lot of ways. Mm. Um, uh, and so going forward, I'm, I'm open to the possibility that Miami vice could very much, you know, blow me out of the water. Um, I don't know that the rest of Michael Mann's output is going to do that. So for right now, I'm planting my flag here. Yeah. I, so I had seen this, but I had not seen it probably since around the time it came out. I can't remember if I saw it in theaters or not, but I definitely saw it pretty close to the time it was out in theaters. And I remember loving it at the time. And I just have never gone back to it. And so, you know, in my general rankings, it was high, but it was not necessarily as high as something like a heat or a thief because I just had, there's a recency bias there in terms of what I had been watching. And it's just been so long. I couldn't remember if I really liked it or if it was just one of those movies that like I liked because it seemed really serious and well-made at the time. But going back to it now, yeah, no, it, I think in a lot of ways it is one, it, one of, if not man's most like just cohesive and complete works. And it is definitely an acting clinic from just about everyone in that cast. And they're... You know, a couple of flourishes that maybe he did not need to throw in there aside. I feel like it is like there really isn't much you can point to in this movie and not and not say that was pretty great. 
I mean, if you ever wanted to be a Mike Wallace impersonator, this is your textbook. Totally. <laughs> I think it's uh, because this is the last movie I saw in a theater with my dad. Okay. Um, so like this, like, and it, which ultimately is going to make it the last movie I ever saw with my dad in a theater, uh, which is weird. Um, but like, so I'm kind of glad it is like Michael Mann's best. And I'm pretty sure that that is going to flavor <laughs> mm-hmm. um, my, my appraisal of it. But also, like, this is just a damn good movie. And like you so know, much of it, like it's interesting because so much of it, I actually kept bringing in things from other movies and applying bits and pieces of this into those other movies. And I'm like, wait a minute. No, like those weren't here. This was all this thing. This is like very much kind of blueprinting where movies are going to go. Like movies like this are going to go in the next 10, 20 years. Yeah. And it's it's one of those things where like I my remembrance of it was that it was a lot more not not quite biopic because it's not specifically a a biography of a particular person, but it is, you know, like a true to life fictionalized story. I remember it being more tropey than it actually was. I remember it having more kind of like, you know, these are the the hallmarks of this genre of taking a real world story and turning it into a drama. And it has a couple of those moments, like especially in the very beginning when you get the scene with Cliff Curtis once again being asked to play a person of, of brown color that is not his national descent as the, uh, you know, the sheik in Iran. Uh, and you get that little speech at the beginning with Al Pacino talking about we're 60 minutes. We're the number one news program, like basically laying out the entire structure of like why 60 minutes is important and why this is a big deal before they kind of launch into the main thrust of the story. But after that, there really isn't very much of that. Like it really it manages to wring a lot of drama out of the story without like falling back too often on stuff that is just like hallmarks of this kind of movie that you've definitely seen a lot more of in the last 20 years. Uh, also just note, like for me, it's a, it's a two hour and 40 minute film. I think it's incredibly well paced. Like uh, this is the other thing is for me, this movie like kind of unfolds in a snappier fashion than heat, which isn't necessarily an endorse. Like it doesn't necessarily mean it's better. Right. But like, I feel like just in terms of the way the film covers ground, uh, it is a really efficient film and like introduces a ton of different players and uh, like overlapping plot lines without ever making the film. Uh, you know, it's, it's your point just now, Alex, like you, there's a version of this film that feels like one exposition, uh, like carpet bombing after another. Yeah. And that just doesn't happen. Um, it's, it's, it's really well laid out. And it makes a film that is predominantly people talking on phones, talking in rooms, going to meetings and such, uh, makes it feel really dynamic and exciting, despite the fact that, like, if you were to say, well, what what actually happens in the film that's, like, dramatic or dynamic, it's like, well, there's some big conversations and people have some really unhappy realizations. Yeah, this movie gave... Oh, go ahead, Alex. I would say just real quick, as my partner put it, as I was watching it last night, she's like, this seems like a serious men talking movie. I don't like those. And, you know, <laughs> the thing is, she's right. It is 100% one of those kind of movies. But I think it is one. I do like those kind of movies. But two, I think this is one of the best examples of that kind of movie, because the tension is really just there the whole way through. Well, and sometimes those serious men fax one another. Mm-hmm. Oh, my which God. Handwritten like- notes. 
shout out to this movie making like yeah like making written notes and fax machine can the fax machine dynamism is what we get out of this this is how boomers i am which uh, like the the firm the firm did give us that was before this yeah yeah uh, that was before did did give us the fax machine as a critical plot element but i think michael mann did the fax machine better here I mean, he runs the gamut of like 1997 <laughs> technology in this movie. There's so a, there's a significant fax scene. There's a bunch of payphone scenes. There are some very bulky cell phone scenes. There's even a pager scene. We get hey, the, we get the, the nonlinear video editing. Yep. Yep. Uh, there's there's trying to use a satellite phone uh, <laughs> out in on the Outer Banks. It looks like or or, or something like it's that. Bahamas, uh, I think. Uh. I, I couldn't figure out if it was Bahamas or if it was like Carolina. It, it was, was either shot, Bahamas or like Long Island. I really could not tell. It was shot in the Bahamas. Okay. Um, but I don't know that it was supposed to be in the Bahamas. Okay. Is the they just wanted thing. to, Al Pacino just wanted to go to the Bahamas and man was like, can I just bring a camera? Like, just, we'll just film this scene here. It's fine. Uh, so before we get into uh, like the, the details, I'll, I'll give you a brief rundown on it. Uh, so this is a story that played out across three years, or as or as man notes during the film. Uh, it's it's a film that takes place between the OJ verdict and the arrest of the Unabomber. Uh, Jeffrey Wigand, played here by Russell Crowe, uh, is a scientist and tobacco executive who is fired by his employer, uh, Brown Williamson Tobacco, and shortly thereafter. Uh, gets contacted by 60 Minutes producer Lowell Bergman, uh, here played by Al Pacino, on an unrelated story about cigarettes. Uh, Bergman quickly realizes from Wigan's odd reactions and paranoia that this is a guy who is sitting on something much bigger. Uh, however, Wigand is bound by a confidential confidentiality agreement, and Bergman is warned that tobacco lawyers are a juggernaut that cannot be defeated uh, because they can outlast you uh, and spend you into the ground. He thinks he identifies a way around this by having Wigand called as a witness in a major lawsuit in Mississippi against the tobacco industry, uh, which will then moot the con confidentiality agreement uh, binding Wigand and therefore uh, blow up the case that Brown Williamson's lawyers would have against CBS for running this interview. This plan roughly works, uh, although the cost for it is much higher than Wigand certainly anticipates. Uh, his family is terrorized and his marriage falls apart. Uh, but the first half of the film ends with Wigand uh, having almost lost everything, but going through with the testimony and 60 Minutes now has prepared a bombshell report uh, that they are ready to air. Then the second half of the film sees CBS corporate basically kill the story Bergman betrayed by his closest colleagues, especially a particularly decadent Mike Wallace, uh, played by Christopher Plummer. And so now Lowell Bergman finds himself as the insider, the disgruntled employee turned whistleblower against his own show and his own work. Uh, in the end, the report is finally aired. But as Lowell puts it to Wallace uh, in the final scene, what got broken here at 60 Minutes doesn't go back together. Uh, the film ends with him leaving CBS News headquarters uh, sort of like Jason Bourne or Neo, uh, exit their pic, exit their pictures. God, like, and you know, you could very easily see this just being extreme ways by Moby, considering the movie we just came off of for this. But instead, he goes with a massive attack song. Uh, so 
I want to say like up front, yeah, we get the we get the exposition of like what what sixty minutes is. We get a taste for the types of stakes that Lowell is comfortable dealing with by being driven to uh, a location. I can't make out if it's in Iran if we're being held or if they it's mentioned in, like, Hezbollah, Beirut. so it might not they're, actually be Iran. But I think yeah. they're going through checkpoints in like somewhere in Lebanon uh, okay. to talk to this guy. I would assume. Um, you know, you see some visual connections for what's coming up. Uh, you know, obviously everyone is smoking uh, in Beirut as they drive around. The sort of setting there are connections here, uh, you know, worldwide. But the film really kind of gets going with Russell Crowe's last day at work. Uh, basically, we open on and I and I want to right from the first. I feel like this is a very different it's it's a differently shot sort of man film i kept coming to um like rem- like recollections like soderberg in some ways uh from just the the cuts uh sort of the uncomfortable framing in some of the sequences i was thinking about a lot about traffic uh in terms of how some of these scenes play out and I, I can't remember if that movie came out before or after this but it's around you know, the same time i think yeah, and, and when we're introduced to Wygand, uh, you know, we the, the scene opens on a, a corporate birthday party in the background. Everyone's smiling and having cake while he is loading his shit into his bag uh, and leaves uh, leaves Brown Williamson headquarters. And we get our first intimation of maybe his paranoia or maybe the actual stakes, which is that the security guard, uh, as he leaves the building, uh, immediately calls it in on the radio. Um, but this is, we're going to, we're going to see this a lot with like uncomfortable close-ups and, uh, like odd, odd, like awkward framings. Uh, at times the, the film seems to be getting like downright expressionist, uh, in terms of how it is like tight on, on fragments of actors faces. Uh, and D, when we were talking about this before the show, you, you sort of mentioned that this might be, uh, this might be like certainly a blueprint for a lot of like the visual language we're going to see from movies uh, like subsequent to this. Uh, but also I'm curious, you know, we, we've now seen so many uh, man uh, Dante Spinotti collaborations. Where do you rate this one? And what do you think is, is going on here? That's different. Cause it does feel really distinct from the other ones we've seen. So there's a couple of things that like really stick out here. One, this is the dawn. This is the 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 the, the rebirth, the dawn of the rebirth of shooting through shit. Um, whether it's people or glass or sub objects, something there is always going to be a very. Well, I mean, not, I shouldn't say always. There is a tendency towards shooting with a dominant, out of focus foreground image. Like there is something in the way of the camera in all of these, which I think here really works great because this is such a voyeuristic film. We are looking at real lives. We are we are being voyeurs here in a way like in the and Spinotti is definitely like playing with that, you know, um, but I mean, you know, we shoot through crowded bus you know people on a bus. We shoot through windows. We shoot through trees. We through shoot through, you know, you know. Uh, over shoulders but like in ways that like we don't usually shoot over the shoulder um one of the things that spinati does a lot here is the like it's playing much more with 
kind of ugly depth of field where it's shallow, but it's not shallow enough. We're not blowing out like in the there's the one scene that like, you know, we talked about where um, Wygand is talking to um, oh God. Uh, Michael Gambon, but I can't Michael if I remember Gambon, his character. Yeah. the CEO of the company. Uh, yeah, Thomas this, Sandifer. Right, there we go. Um, and when they, they're cutting, one, they're, they're cutting very quickly between the two of them. And there's like, there's so much coverage. There's like, God, I don't even know how many cameras are in this shot, but like, there's a lot of different angles for these shots. It feels like there's like at least eight or nine different things they cut to over the course of that conversation. There's at least two over the shoulder for each character. Um, and it's, which is just kind of like, one is very tight and then one is, for, is pulled out a little bit more. Um, but this, and this conversation cuts between them, but neither one of them is so out of focus that like, you can't clearly make out the details of like Michael Gambon's face or Russell Crowe's face when they're swapping between them, which is not a way you would normally do this. Normally you would pull out much more, um, to isolate the subject. These sub subjects don't get isolated here, except for when they are being framed by the shit we are shooting through. Um, which really actually, and it's funny because in a way, like, you know, um, at the same time, like, you know, I, I mentioned this, Janusz Kaminski, uh, just a year, what, like the year before? I think it was a year before. Saving Private Ryan does this right. a lot. Um, and so like those two films together really kind of form this visual language of, you know, the iso the unisolated, isolated subject, the, you know, no longer, like, you know, avoiding the steady cam, avoiding the steady cam in vehicles. Like, you know, one of the things we talked about the opening shot and like one of the things that's great is that's that camera is like not mounted to a goddamn thing. It's on a person and that person is shaking like shit. And so the camera is shaking like shit. And it's just like no one would do this. No one would do this. They would mount the camera into a gimbal on the side of the car. But like, we're like, no, put the car in the, you know, put the camera in the car on a person. Don't give it any like kind of shock absorption. Let's just go. Make it feel like you're in that passenger well, seat. Yeah, you are I in that passenger seat. I do wonder if it's taking some cues there from, uh, I feel like, I think this movie is like shortly after Black Hawk Down or it might be contemporaneous. I thought it was. Those are both 99, I think. Yeah. Um, Either way, the thing that like the the thing that makes them go together in my head is the presence of Lisa Gerard, uh, who it, like this is peak Lisa Gerard. Uh, does your soundtrack need the lamentations of women? Uh, then it does. We yes, can score it this way, uh, and it's yeah, a good move. Yeah, because Black Hawk Down is two thousand and one, right? Oh, oh it yeah. is. Okay. Yeah. 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 Shit. Um, okay. Yeah. Because yeah, when I look at this film, because like, I what see I'm that sequence. Yeah, sort of the disorientation and the violence of the camera in these like locations uh, is is really striking. But but yeah, that conversation you're you're referencing, um, and this is this is kind of a, a key character moment for Wygand. Wygand, uh, we'll talk about the marriage stuff in a minute, maybe as a as a unit. But one of the things that runs through this movie is like, why does how is Jeffrey Wygand supposed to decide what to do? And why does he do what he ultimately does, right? These are parts of the character study we're, we're here for uh, because he's kind of a, a slippery character to get a handle on. Um, in part, because he's a little bit of an asshole uh, yeah. in, 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 in some ways. But in this scene where uh, Sandifer has called him in 
to basically retroactively change his uh, confidentiality confidentiality agreement um, just on the possibility he might consider talking about what he did and what he knows. And in this scene, the, the, the framings you're talking about, Dia, like one thing that jumped out at me is it's almost like the camera is like embodying the glare being passed between these two characters. Uh, because the thing that tends to be in view is like the jaw and the hairline of the character whose POV you're, you're uh, holding. And then in like much crisper focus is the person they're staring at. And at a key moment, the shots are reversed when, when Wygand realizes this is just a, basically a meeting where he's been called in to be threatened. The camera just like, I love this from shot one side so to the other. Fucking much. Yeah. And now that now the two are looking at each other in completely different ways. It's so good. Um, yeah, no, when the camera pans from Wigan's like one of a wagon shoulder to the other, and like, yeah, that is that is such a great shot. And that's really one of the few times that like the camera the camera doesn't really like to move in mm-hmm. in this like Spinotti's not much of a moving the camera kind of guy. He likes to set a shot. And let this let let the scene unfold from there. Um, you know, he's kind of like you know, I I, I am where I am where the, the the you know the the point of view should be. Let the action unfold around the camera. Um, and that's one of the few times that the camera really transparently moves. It is very upfront about. You will notice the fact that we are shifting the camera a full like you know a full frame slide to the left. Um. Yeah, and and like the fact that it is the moment now that like, um, like a, a line has been crossed for Crow's character. Uh, that it is partly the insult of this, uh, the assumption that he would be unethical that he finds so offensive. The other thing that has moved into focus, uh, from the from the shot, uh, from Sandifer's perspective on Crow, uh, is I believe the legal heavy in the background who's been who was out of the previous framing is now razor sharp in it that now the threat in the room yeah before uh, that he's just a hand and like a tapping pen and then all of a sudden he's there full frontal you know well and it's funny again because i don't actually think he comes into full focus i think he stays in that weird middle ground of like just on the edge of the focal plane so, so in that, like in that scene, we do get Wigan and he's in, cause he's in focus. I don't think it ever pulls back to the, maybe it does, but I, I, my, my, my memory of his, of his scene is that that character is, isn't, he's less, in, he's more in focus than even when they kind of normally, normally defocus someone in this movie, but he is just on the cusp of tack sharpness. There's something else in the scene that jumped out cause it, it, touches on a character note uh that russell is the way russell's playing wygand um which is that he has an unusual tick of like eye blinking uh a lot of people and sort of like scrunching up his eyes um and also in the scene sandifer 
kind of trying to be like nothing about the scene is friendly right but he opens no. on this bullshit like bit about golf no but it's that really, it's that kind of like just maniacal southern friendliness like the kind that like you know is there specifically to disarm you so they can fucking knife you like that is what he is going for but it's also a fuck you because he yeah. he does the like it's really great because he does the oh you're a plus two handicap right mm-hmm. and it's like oh see i'm being i'm being better about you. but then Wygan has to admit, no, I'm a plus seven. Yeah. And it's just like, damn. But the other thing he gets at is there's something spooky about Jeffrey's concentration. And there's a lot Mm -hmm. loaded in here. Like, uh, there's certainly some suggestion that, like, uh, Wygand is, uh, like, neurodivergent. Um, But I think... I like the thing that is kind of being gotten at here is whether or not, uh, like, there's some sort of, like, diagnosable condition here. He didn't fit. It's like he's a guy who's not polished. He's from the shoulder. He's not political. Um, yeah, yeah. And he's intense. And even in the scene, it's kind of a reminder of like, even though you could golf well, you didn't golf the right way. And that's really and that's really why you got fucked as an executive. Right. It's that even though you could like inhabit our world, and you're good at the things we're good at. We still found you kind of off putting. Uh, and so even here, it is sort of like, you know, digging the thumb in uh a little bit uh to sort of underscore the degree to which you know he's you know he's not a fit um and kind of blame him uh for for what's happening uh to him in in all of this i think the the thing is though this doesn't necessarily guarantee that he's going to he in the moment he's very pissed off uh about what has happened but it still takes a lot to begin to convince him uh that he needs to blow the whistle on this and in the fallout like the reason that he thinks he was called in there is because somehow uh brown and williamson got word that he was consulting on a piece for 60 minutes. It's very funny how this all unfolds, which is basically that someone else sends a really underwhelming leak to Lowell Bergman, uh, which is a, a study on people setting themselves on fire with cigarettes, which was, and to a lesser extent now that uh, cigarette use isn't as prevalent, uh, it's a, it's a less salient issue, but also from a different company. Yeah, uh, it was a, it was a huge cause of fires, and there's somebody sending uh, a a dump of research materials to Bergman about what Philip Morris uh, knew about people uh, starting fires in their house with with cigarettes, and a contact at the FDA gives Wygan's name, which is interesting to ponder. How do they already know that he would be available to talk about something like this? Or maybe it's just that renowned uh, in, in the space. But it is when Bergman calls that poor, poor Leanne. It's interesting. Uh, Wygan's wife, Leanne, seems to intuit that he is capable of doing something really dangerous as far as talking to the press goes. So when Lowell calls, she does the worst thing possible, which is tries to stonewall him completely. Right. The reaction, it's basically blood in the water for Bergman, who immediately knows that you don't have a reaction like that unless you know that there's 
buried treasure somewhere nearby. And so he faxes Wygand. I assume he guesses that the fax number would be one number off the home number. Uh, but he starts sending faxes to Wygand and they sort of text back and forth via fax. And Bergman gets him to be open to the idea of consulting on the uh, story about the cigarette fires. But after the meeting with Sandifer, when Wygand is accused Lowell of instantly like burning him as a source, Bergman heads down there and they have a confrontation, but that sets them up to have their second real conversation. And one of their most important about who Wygand is, where he is coming from. And We'll pause here so you can hear the scene uh, they have in the car, uh, sort of discussing discussing this, and then we'll come back. James Burke, CEO of Johnson & Johnson. When he found out that some lunatic had put uh, poison in Tylenol bottles, he didn't argue with the FDA. He didn't even wait for the FDA to tell him. He just pulled Tylenol off every shelf at every store right across America instantly. <laughs> and then he developed a safety cap. Because look, as a CEO, sure, he's gotta be a great businessman, right? But he's also a man of science. So he's not gonna allow his company to put on a shelf a, a product that might hurt people. Not like the Seven Dwarfs. Seven Dwarfs? Seven CEOs of Big Tobacco. I got him in front of Congress that time. It was on oh, television. Yeah, 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 swore under oath that they know nothing about addiction, disease. Yeah. Done C-SPAN, yeah. Okay, so here you are. You, 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 you go to work uh, for tobacco. You come from corporate cultures where research, really creative thinking, these are core values. You go to tobacco. Tobacco's a sales culture, market and sell enormous volume, go to a lot of golf tournaments, the hell with everything else. I mean, what are you doing? Why are you working for tobacco in the first place? I can't talk about it. <laughs> the work I was supposed to do might, might have had some positive effect. I don't know, it could have been beneficial. Mostly, I got paid a lot. I took the money. My wife was happy. My kids had good medical, good schools. Got a great house. I mean, what the hell is wrong with that? Nothing's wrong with that. That's it, you're making money. You're providing for your family. What could be wrong with that? I always thought of myself as a man of science. That's what's wrong with it. Then uh, you're in a state of conflict, Jeff. Because look, here's how it lays out. If you got vital insider stuff, the American people for their welfare really do need to know, and you feel impelled to disclose it and violate your agreement in doing so, that's one thing. On the other hand, if you want to honor this agreement, then uh, that's simple. You do so. You say nothing, you do nothing. There's only one guy who can figure that out for you, and that's you, all by yourself. Girls only had half a day. I think this is, uh, first of all, I think it's a terrific scene. I think part of it is I really find Crow's performance here compelling. He is, you know, it's a reminder of just how great a performer he is. And it's, it's funny to take, like, it is shocking to look at, like, the featurette for this thing and realize how young crow still was when he was making this movie it was like early 30s wasn't he yeah 
Um, and here he's playing a uh, very haggard looking middle aged scientist. Uh, but he is all like residence, reticence, and like being closed in. But I'm really interested in this thing that comes through in this conversation, which is this identification as being a man of science, as having being someone who has a code and Bergman immediately identifying that there's a major weakness in this armor, which is that how the fuck is that code square with being a scientist for Brown and Williamson? Uh, and I'm curious, you know, how you, how, what, like what you make of the scene. And do you think that Bergman is, do you view Bergman as fundamentally manipulative uh, in all this? I don't know that I would call him outright manipulative, at least not on a conscious level. I think he's very good at justifying things to himself, even when he knows that what he is doing is not necessarily the right thing to do, whether it's for his family, for his his career, for, you know, what is like the or the moral or ethical thing to do. Like and I think he says as much. I don't remember if it was in this conversation or if it was in another one later on. He literally says, I took the money. You know, mm-hmm. like I worked at Johnson and Johnson. I worked at all these other places working in the health fields for these companies. And then I took the money because the money was there. You know, it was a it, it, that was a big part of why I decided to take this job. And he doesn't really try to dress it up too much. Like he, it's very much an, an, an admission that I sold out because I was able to provide a life for my family that way that I would not have been able to otherwise. Now, there's a, there's a great, um, in the article that this is based off of, there's a great Weigand quote that was just like, you know, they, the the Marie Brenner asked them, like, asked Weigand, like, you know, what, did you think your 30s would turn out this way? And he's just like, I thought it would be very successful. And, you know, I started at $20,000 a year and wound up at $300,000 a year. That was pretty nice. Um, yeah. Which I think, I think Russell Crowe just really kind of, you know, conveys that, that, that quote so perfectly here. And it also kind of it play it it plays with the brusqueness that he sort of embodies through a lot of this stuff too because like there's I think there's a I think the other screenwriter that worked on this movie uh, with Michael Mann Eric met Roth. with him yeah he met with him at some point uh, Russell Crowe never got to because of the the nature of the legal battle but he met with him at some point and he said I didn't like this guy very much I found him kind of defensive <laughs> and kind of kind of like an asshole. And he wasn't really sure what to make of him and how truthful he was being. And I think part of that is that he is just he tries to justify the things that he has done that he knows are wrong. And he doesn't really have a good way of talking his way out of that, especially probably not during the time when he was literally not allowed to actually say what was going on there. Yeah, and and I think in this scene is also a thing we're going to see throughout this movie is sellouts are all around us. That right. a lot of people have sold out and they just have no clue that they've done it. And Wygand, you insert like he alludes briefly to uh, all he like he fell into a trap on day one, which is he alludes to being brought in to do something that was creative. He he says that there was some kind of project that you know if they could have made it work, it might have done some good. Clearly, not the highest priority at Brown Williamson, and immediately he was put on the as we'll learn the make the shit way 
hit hit way better and make it way more addictive <laughs> uh beat because that's fundamentally what the what the business was but he gets this defensive like what's wrong with that like, i made a lot of money i took care of my family i had an awesome house like what's what's wrong with that so th- literally the american dream there's a really funny moment in my life where um i was living um with my partner in a basement in the east village and our across across the basement neighbor he was a physicist. Um, I think he was he was like an instructor, like a, a university instructor. Um, and one day like, I was talking to him and he was just like, yeah, um, when I was doing my my dissertation defense, um, one of my one of my friends, he was doing his dissertation defense, too. And I I just walked out of mine and he was getting ready to walk in to do his. And, you know, he said, man, I just I just saw this guy get like a really really nice car i think i want one of those (laughs) and like then the dude like went and basically like quit and like was like went to go work for some major conglomerate um and like was making like seven figures a year and this guy was just like living in a basement in east village and he was just like you know we make choices (laughs) well and i think Something else that so so Bergman in this scene is trying to do the uh, I read a really deep, really fun article about this uh, analyzing Wigand through the lens of different uh, like ethical systems, basically arguing that um, fundamentally Wigand only makes sense from a Kantian point of view, and a lot of this movie is arguments from the per, uh, position of like utilitarianism just bouncing off this guy or failing to comprehend his dilemma. But it's something that Lowell and later Mike Wallace repeatedly do, which is that the, the American people have a right to know, like there's so many lives at stake. There's so much social harm being done by this, uh, that, you know, this is kind of an obvious decision. This is like, you know, they, they play lip service to, this is a hard decision. You know, you're the only one who could make it, but here in the scene, Lowell kind of indicates on the one side, here are these millions of people on the other side. Here's you with your nice little life. And what doesn't get comprehended here is that, yeah, but it is Wigan's life. And more than that, it's his kids' lives and his his relationship with his wife that are also at stake. And it doesn't map as neatly to the greatest good for the greatest number because of the other people and obligations he's going to put in harm's way by doing this. And so you know, when he's sort of making this defense of like why I sold out, the other part of this is to complete his redemption, to sort of walk back this decision uh, from joining the dark side. He is going to have to inflict massive damage on the people that he has sort of contracted himself to take care of more than anyone else in this world. Uh, and it's been on the table since the start that like, uh, you know, one of his kids is uh, like has a really bad uh, respiratory condition that requires really expensive uh, ongoing medical care. And so from the first, we also have the the knowledge that, you know, this being America, uh, a kid with any kind of special needs is also a landmine uh, like in your life that you have to be really careful about. And terrifies you. It makes it really easy for the people offering benefits to like hold that over you. Um, I want to talk a little bit about 
about the two marriages, I suppose, that we see in this, because I think that's one of the other things <laughs> that is portrayed in this film. From the start, and this this starts out kind of a portrayal of of Wygan's marriage. We don't see very much of Lowell's, but it is we detent we we detect that it doesn't feel like it was a easy relationship to begin with necessarily. Uh, but more importantly, Wygand never seems able. Like is a recurring theme in his relationship with Leanne. He cannot have the conversation he needs to have with her and that she deserves to have had with her in time. He is always a beat behind like her realizing that yet more things have happened uh, without her knowledge. Yeah, it's it's interesting. Like I will say right out of the gate, remembering that Diane Venora plays Leanne, I was I immediately my heart sank a little bit just because as much as I like her as an actress, her playing a sort of superficial Southern house, like mom named Leanne does not feel like a thing that I would immediately go to cast her for. Like, I'm sorry, Diane, you just have a face she, that was born in Connecticut. She's doing uh, such a good job doing a Jessica Lange impersonation though. Yeah, she, that's the thing is that like when she started acting and when she, that, that, that relationship started to form in the film, I'm like, Oh, she's really nailing this. And the thing that she nails is this sense that whatever issues she may have with like communication with her husband or things like that, she is bought in because he has provided her the life that she expected. Like he pro he made promises to her about, you know, making sure that the kids will all be taken care of. We'll have a nice house. We'll have cars. You will be able to live the country club lifestyle because I have taken this job and I have, you know, sold out essentially the way that I have. And as soon as he gets fired, you know, that facade starts to break a little bit and she starts to like question like, well, what are you going to do? Well, I mean, how, how are we going to pay for the kids? How are we going to pay for this? And you see, like, I think in the moment, the moment where it really kind of all comes together is in that scene when they are emptying out their house. Oh my God. When they, when they are, they're sitting there and they're looking around the place and moving into their still decent house, but much smaller than the one <laughs> that they had in Kentucky or, you know, in the, the one that he was living in before. And just the way her heart just breaks in that moment and just seeing like all the memories that we have here and all the things that we expected to have going forward will no longer be a part of this. And you can just see in that moment that like she's no longer like there's really no not going to be any convincing her that this was worth it. Well, she acts that and like they shoot it like it's a funeral scene. Yeah. Like that is that is that is a viewing <laughs> That is out of that yeah. scene is that scene is shot, which is impressive. It's like that is what it that's what it is for for you know Leanne. Yeah, and they sell it really well. Like it feel it has that that funeral that uh, funeral pall kind of over it, and like from there on, like there are moments where she starts to think. You can see her kind of like, all right, I guess this is what we're doing. I guess I'm along for this ride, but it's like she's never fully bought in on it. And there's a version of this I think you can see where she's almost a Tennessee Williams stereotype where it's like, <laughs> and the part of Diane will be played by this half-empty martini glass crying right, in the corner. totally. Um, but That's that the Aaron scene, Sorkin version. Yeah, but that scene where she breaks into tears because this is where they brought their babies home from the hospital. And over right. there is where our kid took their first steps. And like, as much as Leanne is not up for this and she is clearly somebody who like, 
you know, when we when we first see her, she's out on the chase on the veranda, basically. Um, and she yeah, the, the deal was that you would take care of us and we'll live in comfort. And as much as like, you know, it's unfair the expectations she had, um in in some ways, the 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 fact that she is not going to like that he is doing something that seems pretty morally righteous and brave but she has to look at it in some way she has to look at it through like the lens of how is this going to affect our family but also she can't help but look at it as i didn't sign up for this level of hardship i didn't sign up to have all these things taken away and it'd be really easy for that character to be wholly unsympathetic but i think in that one scene um you really do feel for her and she and and when she eventually breaks up with him you know him missing the moment as usual and trying to postpone the conversation. But, you know, she, she admits she want like another theme of this movie is people realizing who they're going to be in a crisis. And she wants to be the loyal wife who stands by, you know, her man and all this, who keeps the family together through this crisis. And she gets halfway down this road and is like, that isn't me. I can't do this. And that's a hard, like, it's a brutal thing, but I think it's, I think it's well executed and way more sympathetic uh, than I think a lesser movie would have, would have done with it. It totally is. It avoids the, like, shrill caricature of a superficial person. Like, she embodies a superficial person that you can kind of understand how she got there and how, you know, and it's not like she wasn't wronged in any way. Like you said, like, uh, Wygan never really brought her into the conversation on any decision he makes in this movie, he essentially blows up their their family kind of without even asking for her input in any meaningful no. way. It all happened like and part of it is I, I feel some sympathy for him for like in the opening where, he, where he's trying to figure out how he's going to tell her that he lost the job and he lose the fact oh, I'll be home tomorrow. She asks, where's my coffee mug? And he says, try the car. And it it's kind of an asshole move. She has to go outside to go look in the cup holder, I guess, for where this this mug is. But it almost feels to me like he wants to get her alone so they can have the conversation. And he still can't do it. He follows her outside. And then he's like, uh, I'm going to go to the store. You, go to the store. you want anything? Yeah. And it's on her to notice, hey, why are there boxes full of your office crap in the car? And what? then the word comes out he's fired. I love how this is mirrored by her going to the store when, you know, he comes home and there's the bodyguards now mm-hmm. and because CBS mm-hmm. has hired security and she's like, I'm going to this store. Please explain to your children who, you know, our new house guests are. And like, it, yeah, you, you do get the sense that like at this point she is kind of like, you know what? You have not talked to me, so I am not going to talk to you. Um, Because I do, I do get the sense that both of them like, Wygan gives me the sense that like he is not someone who has ever really been a part of this family like that he has like set it up and you know he go he went to work every day he made his $300,000 and he came home had his whiskey and was like you know oh I love my daughters and I love my wife um, and now I'm gonna watch Crossfire and go to sleep like I resonated with this movie so much because this movie happened right when my mom was getting a divorce from a guy who was literally Jeffrey Wygand. Like it's 
the things that this movie gets right about like uh it, like gives me flashbacks to like my dad had a really really good job when I was very little mm-hmm. and then he very much did not have uh-huh. a really good job mm-hmm. and like the experience of a child of like hey why are all our cars different like six like hey two months ago we had different cars and now they're smaller cars that don't have any like feet like where'd the cars go hey why like why are we eating this food now like why are we having this again like just overnight and all the things that you see the wygans doing right where like suddenly the two family car suddenly that shit's gone and yeah he's he's still rocking a an import uh station wagon but like but it's just the it one. is now the family station wagon yeah um and yeah like he is and, and this is the i think it's a sort of testament to how deftly the script handles this and how good the performance is i feel like i should have even less sympathy for this character archetype in some ways because like we have come up in uh generations that i think generally like the ideal is the domestic load is shared more evenly mm-hmm. that there, there's just way less this idea of like, Hey honey, like I'll handle all the business and home like, and uh, like job shit. And you just take care of my children. Just make sure they get to school on time. Yeah. And, and Wygand kind of operates in that mode, but he is still a very sympathetic character within that. And you can see there are some parts of this that he's very, very good at. Um, when his kid has the asthma attack, like, yes, he shoots it through the lens of the thing that he's most comfortable with in the world, which is like biochemistry. Um, but it is still like a really affecting moment when his eldest has that attack and he immediately tries to like calm her down and talk her through by getting her just to engage with like the intellectual, like, Hey, what is happening to you is not, is not necessarily scary. Like we, it's understood. We know what it is. Here's how it works. And like, he's really good in moments like that. And so he doesn't, you know, like, again, both these characters fall into stereotypes of kind of, you know, half in half out, uh, parents in a family marriage, but you end up having a good sense of like, why the family may have worked even and may continue to work even if the marriage does not right um the bergmans are a different model i think that's kind of you know in some ways they're your as pacino alludes to later you know it's a it's a modern family right they're both in their second marriage uh they both have grown children um, or in college is, is that brecken meyer that shows up for like five seconds as one of the sons Oh man, uh, I'll the scroll through this, but yeah, it's uh, yep, it is. Okay, <laughs> yep, her son. I thought is- he might show up again, but apparently no. The rest of his part of the movie got cut out. Um, but they're an example of they're close, but also like you get a taste of what their married life is like the day the the first parcel shows up at Lowell's house because they're kind of like completely ignoring each other. Uh, they're both doing their respective jobs and the, the house is just chaotic. The family is entirely uh, self-absorbed, but not in a negative sense. Everyone is really into what they are doing, but also they're warm and intimate being adjacent to each other. 
Yeah, it seems uh, like that. there is there is support there for everyone, and no one feels like they are being neglected necessarily. But everyone is kind of off in their own little orbit, doing the thing that they're doing. Lowell, especially because it seems like that guy does not get more than five minutes a day where he is not taking phone calls or doing something newsy. I'm dying. Like, do you think this is a? Do you think this is Michael Mann self portrait? Well, I mean, this is this is, I mean, this is Lowell Bergman and Sharon Teller, like. Yeah, you know, this is this is the you know like the apex predator of like New public York broadcasting. liberal public you know broadcasting you know um, journalism like, like I don't shit. know a lot about that world or those people for the most part, but I've heard of Lowell Bergman even respective of this movie. Like I know who that person is. And that's the thing is like you know like, like you know like my I grew up with. You know, everyone in my family watched 60 Minutes, and then everyone in my family also started watching Frontline. Frontline. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that was, that was... It took me a long time to realize how centrist Frontline was, right? by the way. Uh, <laughs> like, years, I was like, man, here we are getting the straight truth. And then I think back to the Frontline thing that was basically like, and here's why we should reinvade Iraq. Like, five years before <laughs> that actually happened. And I think about, like, we're here to be objective. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I hope, I hope Bergman wasn't on that one. Uh, but but yeah, it, it is like this portrayal of uh, a model of a family where everyone is like pursuing being high achieving without necessarily it's it's kind of trying to demonstrate that like the strength of family can endure having like really ambitious and involved careers. Um, and I, when when the chips are down for Lowell, we see that 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 relationship is there for him that, you know, when, when it is moment to, when there, when there comes a moment where uh, Sharon does need to tag in and like get him out of his pity party um, and out of a spiral that could go anywhere, she's able to do that. And with a really quick shorthand, be like, you're just, you you were at your worst. You need to be at your best. Lindsay Krauss as the ghost of like American psychotherapy in mm-hmm. this movie is so great. <laughs> it's true. Like she, she's just kind of haunting this movie for starters. Cause she's in it for all of maybe five lines. Yeah. Yep. She's, she's in, she's in multiple scenes, but she, there are multiple ones where it's all Al Pacino. She's just there in the background, kind of looking over at him while he's taking phone calls or whatever. And then all of her scenes are the equivalent of like touching the side of his cheek. Mm-hmm. And like, you know, even if she doesn't like to touch him, it's just like it's just like it's just touching the side of his cheek and being like, it's OK. Oh, you. <laughs> but that's the thing. Like, it's also like, you know, coming off of heat. This is very much the opposite of the kind of marriage that, you know, Vince and Hannah had, which is, mm-hmm. yes, this is obviously not their first marriage. They're falling apart again because, again, they're off in their own little worlds, kind of doing their own thing. This is kind of the ideal form of that same idea where it actually works there's no real conflict in this marriage to speak of. Like at most, she occasionally is just like, oh, come on, get your shit together. You know what you're doing. But that's it. Like there isn't anything there to really signify that like there is anything about his home life that is anything other than functional. It's so funny because I think about like, you know, like when I was watching this and thinking about like, you know, the concept of Sharon Tiller and Lowell Bergman. And like one of the things I remember was this, you know, um, an interview with um oh god i just forgot his name the really famous fashion photographer um 
no, we'll never remember it in time. But um, talking about how he always had like, you know, partners that wanted to be partners mm-hmm. and how he was just like so in love with his work because he was like literally kind of like the greatest fashion photographer in the world at the time and like constantly working. And like, you know, part of I think what like, you know, we see like working with Sharon Tiller, you know, with, with Lindsey Krauss and Al Pacino here is that they do both give the, you know, communicate that like they can be a part of a relationship that doesn't require the two of them to be constantly leaned on one another and that they can like exist apart from one another, even if it does feel like an outside audience, maybe that they're too removed and detached and not, you know, lovey dovey and connected enough. But like the two of them are both, you know, like we said, like, you know, just apex predators of journalism at this point. Um, um, by the way, I do love that man works in a side rant about the RCMP into this movie. Right. Uh, just randomly. Where like the thing, the first thing we see Lowell doing <laughs> is being on the phone, being like, you know, the Mounties are basically the modern inheritor of the horse cavalry. <laughs> uh, and they're still up to the same shit. And then he's like, why aren't we covering this? What? You, you, oh, Canada. Everyone decided in a poll that anything that happens in Canada is boring. Uh, and so, like, it's. But then also, uh, why are they on fucking horses? Well, they're all on fucking horses. Where's cops on their fucking feet? <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> God, that that rant where where they get where they get B roll back from something in New Orleans and just whatever whatever stringer or whatever they had sent out there just kept shooting horse cops. Oh, it's great. Just go down um, there and shoot it myself. But uh yeah, I, I think it's it's a it's a it's a really quickly and efficiently sketched uh, character portrait uh, of marriage and sort of indicates where things are going to play out uh, after as, as law begins to bring uh, bring Jeffrey in on this. There's a moment where he still doesn't know what Jeffrey has, um, but they have a strategy meeting over at uh, 60 minutes. And by the way, the most like. This is how you know, like, this is a different era in American journalism, but also Lowell is operating at a tier that I cannot fathom, which is that because the reaction to him calling the Wigand household was hinky, he just books a flight down to Louisville and a hotel to arrange a meeting with this guy on the possibility that there's something there. And that, no, like, you know, nobody's like, why are you going down there? Why, why are we authorizing the six months? Nope. Lowell's, <laughs> Lowell's booked his suite and is heading to uh, Louisville just because someone was weird. He got weird vibes over the phone. Um, Media before 2008, Rob. Dude. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I mean, I like we'll, we'll talk about it. I think that like one of the arguments this this movie, I think, is making is that like. Uh, doing this kind of work does require uh a lot of resources. If you don't, if you don't get a lot, if you don't get really lucky all the time, it requires a lot of resources. Uh, and what man sees coming is that the bad guys have all the resources and increasingly direct veto power over the press well, and increasingly own the press. Yes. Mm-hmm. 
And 60 Minutes, uh, for all its clout, assembled over, you know, half a century is going to discover that there are limits to that uh, in this new environment. But they have a strategy meeting, uh, which we'll, we'll pause here and listen to, because what I love about it is it's really efficient at sketching out what the stakes are in the film. It lays out the strategy they're going to use to overcome these challenges, but also... A lawyer's going. Someone's going to tell them you can't beat these lawyers. These guys never lose. And then we're, the rest of this movie is going to be people rushing to touch that hot stove. Uh, so let's listen in on the sixty-minute strategy meeting. Tobacco referred to this said they should be afraid of him. I assume afraid of what he could reveal. Now you tell me, what does this guy have to say that threatens these people? Well, it isn't cigarettes are bad for you. Hardly new news. <laughs> no shit. <laughs> What's this? What that is, is tobacco's standard defense. It's the we don't know litany. Addiction, we believe not. Disease, we don't know. We take a bunch of leaves, we roll them together, you smoke them, after that you're on your own, we don't know. So, that tells me nothing. Besides, you never get what he's got. Why not? Because of this guy's confidentiality agreement, he's never gonna be able to talk to you. That's not good enough. This guy is the top scientist. In the number three tobacco company in America, he's a corporate officer. You never get whistleblowers from Fortune 500 companies. This guy is the ultimate insider. He's got something to say. He wants to say it. I want it on 60 Minutes. Doesn't matter what he am, wants. Am I missing something? What here? do you mean, Mike? I mean, he's got a <clears throat> corporate secrecy agreement. Give me a break. I mean, this is a public health issue, like an unsafe airframe on a passenger jet or some company dumping cyanide into the East River. Issues like that. He can talk, we can air it. They've got no right to hide behind a, a corporate agreement. Pass the notes. They don't need the right. They got the money. The unlimited checkbook. That's how big tobacco wins every time on everything. They spend you to death. 600 million a year in outside legal. Chadburn Park, uh, Ken Starr's firm, Kirkland and Ellis. Listen, GM and Ford, they get nailed after 11 or 12 pickups blow up, right? These clowns have never, I mean ever. Not even once. Not even with hundreds of thousands dying each year from an illness related to their product have ever lost a personal injury lawsuit. On this case, they'll issue gag orders, sue for breach, anticipatory breach, and join him, you, us, his pet dog, the dog's veterinarian, tie him up in litigation for 10 or 15 years. I'm telling you, they bat a thousand every time. He knows that. That's why he's not going to talk to you. I love Mike Wallace's sheer lack of worldliness here. <laughs> he just, he's astonished that anyone would stand between him and the truth. I don't, I can't tell. Like, does he actually believe this? Is he just this like high on his own supply and being the puffed up, uh, like character that is Mike Wallace? I have no idea, but he like when, when they're like, yeah, we got to deal with these legal agreements. And he's like, no, we don't. This is journalism. People need to know. What kind of paper can you sign to prevent people from hearing the truth? I mean, honestly, yeah, I don't like Mike Wallace, I think, is on record as saying that a lot of what is in this movie is true. But there are also some things that are not. One of the things he specifically cites is the way that Mike Wallace is portrayed here as maybe not necessarily being all the way on board with immediately going at CBS corporate when things start to go wrong. That could just be self-preservation. That could be very much be him being like, well, you know, I don't think that I behave that way or whatever. But, you know, I mean, at this point, he's like a 50-year institution. He is a figurehead on television 
as much, if not more so, than he is a journalist. But as part of that, he's gotten very used to getting whatever he wants. And whatever he wants usually is the truth from whoever it is he's interviewing and whoever it is he's talking to. And, you know, I think Plummer really nails that tone throughout. This guy who is not consciously egotistical and sort of, you know, like you said, very high on his own supply, but subconsciously has just gotten so used to bowling through everything, which you see in that opening scene where he's just like, listen, I sit wherever I goddamn well want, you know, when I do this interview, that kind of thing. Like nothing's ever going to stop him until his reputation is threatened. That's the only thing. That's the only Achilles heel he has is that when his, the possibility of him going out in a way that is anything less than reputable is on the table. He blinks, which is something that, you know, up to this point in the movie, you don't necessarily have a full sense of, but you get the idea that like, you kind of understand how this person could come to that conclusion when he gets there. We get that wonderful line about, I'm not going to end my career in the wilderness of national public radio. God, which is, is I'm sorry. Brutal. Whether or not Mike Wallace actually said that, it is fucking great. Like it's that great was like one of those perfect. lines where it's just like, "Fuck yeah!" Bitch. <laughs> that tells me everything I need to know about this character in like six words. This is incredible. Um, and like you know, I kind of think of Mike Wallace that way. Like growing up with Mike Wallace, I'm kind of like, "Yeah, this is this is kind of who you are." You're you know, yes, you do believe in the truth and you do believe in Edward R. Murrow and you believe in all this journalist crap. But also, when it comes down to it, you're going to preserve your own legacy. You're a TV star. In the end, you are a TV star. Yeah. And TV stars want to be remembered well above all other things. The man, can you imagine being Chris Wallace and deciding to go into journalism? God. You know, he's fared better than some of the other fucking, you know, legacy hires over the years, but But not that much better. But yeah, Jesus Christ, totally. (laughs) Um, It is... The... (laughs) The other thing I love just in the scene, though, I, I can't I cannot figure out who this actor was, but the guy who is like doing the whole explaining what the big tobacco strategy is, where he's like, they always the guy who do the I don't know by defense. Paul Giamatti if this movie was made today. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I don't know. You we, we, you know, take the leaves. We ro- roll them up. You smoke them. What happens after that? You're on they your never own. lose. They never lose. Uh, but also making the case that like, and the reason they never lose is because they have figured out that our legal system in like getting to a verdict is often the hardest part of our legal system. That's where the money comes in. Like getting to some sort of judgment is like, that is the test of your resources and what big tobacco has learned uh, is that if you just delay the process forever and make it excruciating, eventually everything will fall apart because nobody can remain standing in court uh, against you. Um, they they simply they 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 plead ignorance and then they go relentlessly after any sort of challenge. And so they are warned going into this that like tobacco lawyers will hit on every front uh, at the first sign of a threat. Uh, and they basically are undefeated. And Bergman is like, I think I got to solve for that. 
He sort of does, but he really doesn't, right? Like the thing that is funny about this is it is the most like the moment that sixty minutes hubris overtakes all the characters because they they are told exactly what's going to happen, and they're like, "I'll bet this smart idea will overcome all those unsolvable problems that were just laid out." Um, and that that idea. Uh, is going to involve um, a, a class action lawsuit. Before I get into that, I, I want to talk about a scene that follows shortly after this. Um, kind of pivotal moments in Bergman's and uh, and Wygan's relationship, which is that I think in some ways, until very late in the game, this movie is also about uh, the challenges of male intimacy and friendship and the missed signals and uh, misunderstandings that accompany like this developing like relationship because when this is around the time where Wygan begins to feel his family is being surveilled and is under threat. Uh, there's indications that people are like uh, surveilling their home. Uh, he feels like he has been followed. But after the night that he is convinced like somebody was like lurking around in the bushes outside, the first the the only person he can call is Lowell. This is the only friend he has in the world that he can share this stuff with. And he is he's clearly like calling from this place of like vulnerability and just wanting someone to talk to about this. And Lowell can't drop out of producer mode he just wants to say like what's the problem what do you want me to solve it and then they follow up uh they meet in louisville like shortly thereafter and wygand has booked them like a private dining room at like what looks like a really nice japanese restaurant uh in the area and it's like a little a little mandate mm -hmm. and wygand wants to talk he, he he's trying to get Bergman to tell him about who he is. He tries to get Bergman to open up about his background, but he makes the mistake of leading with like probing questions that I don't think cross the line, but it ends up touching on like Bergman's dad and Bergman shuts down immediately. He does not want to talk about his dad. His dad's a deadbeat. And you can see like the way he, like he is aggressively shut down. You can see that like Wygan is really embarrassed and sort of off put like Crow sort of has him tug, tug at its collar and try again a different way. Try to sort of like share something about himself. And Bergman is just like, why, why talk about ourselves? Let's just talk about what, like, what we're working on together. And to me, this scene feels pivotal because, again, so much of what's going to happen is dependent on how much rapport these two men have and how safe Wygan feels talking to people and how like much he's willing to share with Lowell. And Lowell blows it. Uh, and this is like, to me, I look at this and it's like, man, this is, this is the tragedy of male relationships, man, right yeah. here is like at various points, both these guys will want to reach out to each other, but those will never be the same moment uh, in time and their inability to form an emotional bond uh, at the right moments is going to make their lives enormously harder. Yeah, it is. And, you know, I mean, this is definitely another go at the all I am is what I'm going after kind of character for Al Pacino here. I mean, you know, again, there's, yeah. there's there's definitely some direct parallels between what Vincent Hanna is about and what Lowell Bergman is about just on different, you know, professions and wavelengths. But yeah, like the thing is. 
it just seems like Al, like like Bergman at this point, at least as he's portrayed here, has essentially shed any ability to look at any extraneous information beyond what he needs. Like his job is to get the news. His job is to get the information. His job is to secure the sources. And, you know, as a result of that, he's kind of turned into a very ruthless figure, not in like a, you know, malevolent way, but in a way that like excises whatever would be around the fringes of what he's doing, which in this case would be trying to establish an actual rapport or let alone a friendship with this person he is essentially asking to turn his life upside down for. Yeah. Because to him, it's not like there's no question of what he should be doing. And if this guy is like trying to reach out and trying to like touch him in a more personal way, that's just getting in the way. Like that's just not, that's, that's all that is, is interfering with the ruthless efficiency of what he's trying to secure and what he's trying to lock down. And I feel like it, the, the thing that Pacino actually does a pretty good job of embodying throughout the movie is that like, even as he starts to realize where he's fucking up, he can't ever completely shake that methodology and that, that mental framework off. Like even when he is starting to kind of concede a little bit later in the movie, he's still screaming at the guy on the phone, get the fuck on the phone. He's still bullying the guy because to him, all he's doing is fucking up his life and fucking up his work and making it more difficult for him to do the thing that he knows has to be done. Something else that happens in the scene is that with these sort of uh, like advances rejected, Wygand gets at what really worries him, which is that part of it is you just see me as a source. Like he does realize, okay, mm -hmm. yes, clearly this is entirely too. instrumental. Yeah. But then he levels critique against Bergman and basically makes the case. He says a few things. Basically, like, asks how do you know you have made the same decision that i did and you are just a bird in a gilded cage that you think you know you haven't betrayed your radical roots and you're still out there doing this important work but also maybe that's just something you're telling yourself to justify the fact you make a lot of money and you live a really idyllic life uh within these parameters and bergman blows the fuck up at that you know he's you know you don't basically stands on his integrity and it, it like Bergman is a character who throughout this movie is going to be just like playing Twister, putting his like feet and hands on different banana peels uh, because he keeps coming back to this. Like, how dare you question my integrity? My work speaks for itself. I have this, you know, track record, et cetera. I've been going around the world, giving people my word for, you know, 20, 30, how many years? So, yeah. yeah. Uh, and of course, this in this crucial case, like Wygand is going to be 100 percent correct that like he is being taken lightly uh and that like this might not th this might not pan out um and the other but the other part of this critique and i and i i feel like there's a conceit for the scene that they don't follow through uh dia i wonder if it, you noticed it too again they start reversing the shot right like as they're talking even in the mm -hmm. sort of the interplay as wygan like level like readies up his next attack we cut from the white backdrop. We're looking uh, like with Wygan seated on the left and Bergman on the right. And then it flips around uh, as Wygan asks his like most pressing questions. And suddenly we're against a dark uh, like 
grate, a dark grated background uh, with the with the characters reverse shot from the opposite side of the table. And I almost feel like you almost expect is the rest of the scene going to follow this like volley fire editing uh, as they go back and forth. But they only do the repetition like once or twice. And then the conceit is dropped. Might have been too distracting. But I do love that at least we get this idea of Wygand as he probes here understanding that like it is literally a darker shot right that there's like that there is a more precarious feeling when we see it from his perspective as he asks these questions uh than from lowell's uh view of things more out in the light it's one of those things that makes you wonder if there was more to the scene but like at the same time also you kind of don't want more from the scene so it's like hmm, what was going on here was this just supposed to be a suggestion that they had to like kind of you know play at that or was there more here that just like got cut because it, it was just it truly was unnecessary um i don't know but i did notice that too and you're right it's something i can easily imagine getting killed in the editing by yeah like it, it's, <laughs> it's one of those things where like this 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 whole scene was just kind of like it's one of those moments that feels both necessary and deeply unnecessary just in general like yeah um, like it's important <laughs> flavor, but it is mostly flavor. Like it's very important that we get, you know, especially that we get Jeffrey Wygant ordering a Japanese. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So I also, so actually the last thing is Wygant's last attack is also, are you sure your work even has meaning? Are you like, because Lowell is like once the, once word gets out of this and the, the court of public opinion, the information you have is going to change the world. And Wygant is like, you sure about that? I don't think it will. And the story, like, he basically thinks, like, this story will go out. There will be a huge disruption to his life. It might, like, give a headache to the company. But ultimately, nothing will change. And Bergman is kind of being, uh, being a sap for believing, like, this is how the world works. Um, and I'll say, I watched this movie in 1999. And I remembered this scene literally the first time I had a cigarette in 2006. <laughs> Like, and I remembered this. I remembered this movie every time I had a cigarette for like the next ten years. So it changed you, if nothing else. <laughs> uh, the scene that well, actually, like I think the the scene where they tell you how awesome cigarettes are at delivering nicotine, <laughs> like uh, Dia, I can like I can only assume you heard that and you were like, "Fuck yeah, sign and me well, up!" And Give it was funny shit. because then, like you know, like when I was like one of my professors is like. You know, I know you don't smoke, but right now this is a time when you should probably consider it. And I was just like, fine, I will have one. And I was like, holy shit, this did work. And it continued to work. And like, yeah, I was like, wow, nicotine is a drug and it's great. Dude, it's so good. Like that's <laughs> this is this is the thing that fucks me up about smoke. Like I don't smoke anymore, but I think the reason I've been able to stop is because I never told myself I quit. Like I still do not think I've had my last cigarette. Yes. Um, I think the option is always <clears throat> open for me mm -hmm. to be like, fuck, yeah, let's light up or I'll run into the corner store. I'll get either the camel straights or if they got luckies, we'll get those. I still think that. But I also know now, like the last few cigarettes I've had over the past few years have not been good. Right. Like that moment mm -hmm. in my life has kind of passed. It doesn't do the thing it used to. But for a few years there, it was one of the only things that was like, hey, does exactly what it promises. Like you will get this feeling and it will be awesome. Uh, and for, for a brief window, it'll feel like you're capable of superhuman feats. And at least for uh, me, it kept being that feeling. It never felt like, oh, I was like, you know, 
just trying to get myself back to like you know normal it was like no every time it's this way and that's great my my system saved my ass because after like five years cigarettes started just giving me like instant headaches uh and so for me like i got a little bit of the good but it was like a a switch flipped and And that's why you don't have a robot in your chest now rob (sighs) yeah (laughs) thanks thanks body chemistry where it was just like and rob not even your first cigarette of the day you know the most powerful cigarette uh even that one will be bad and that's and that's when it was done um but but I think why like these, these questions why Ian asks are ones that Lowell kind of blows off in this meeting. And what I like about this is, you know, I talked about this with uh, Troy Goodfellow on our Thrones Ahead movie podcast. We paired this with uh, All the President's Men as sort of the more skeptical or even cynical uh, reverse of the crusading journalist coin. And like I look at a scene like this and I think it's still easy to think because it's Al Pacino and because he's kind of like the heroic classic man protagonist in a lot of ways in this film that like he's awesome and basically right about things watching it this time. Like this guy gets clowned on for basically this entire movie, like everything Wygand fears and suspects (laughs) about how this is going to play out comes true and Lowell's assurances, which are meant to be backed by like worldly experience and like knowledge, all of them are proved to be like deeply naive. Well, and it's also interesting because, you know, that first scene is instructive because they're talking about like a literal, you know, political force in this war torn part of the world. They're talking, you know, like the opening question Mike Wallace gives this guy is, are you a terrorist? Like he's used to dealing with these like heavy figures and getting his way regardless, you know? But the thing he runs into, the thing that actually finally finds a way that, like, fucking Harlem Globetrotters dunk on him is literally just the force of evil capital. Like, it yeah. is a, it is the cartels that have essentially been allowed to just exist in the United States for however many fucking hundreds of years that have amassed so much wealth and so much power that they can literally just give people cancer for money and no one stops them. Because they know exactly how to get around it. They finally found the one force that he could not just power his way through. And it's just some asshole Southerners with hundreds of billions of dollars. And there's that scene like in the like, I think it's it's sort of contrasting with um, when Wigand is getting called in to have that confidentiality agreement uh, settled where they just watched their triumphant video, uh, their cut of the episode of the interview, uh, The Shake. And you hear Don Hewitt. uh, talking confidently about this one's going to get a Peabody. We really expose those. And it's like, part of it is also, these guys are really congratulatory for, we tell the hard truths. We make Hezbollah look bad. And it's like, yeah, because even the, even the critique, the Sheik makes, which Mm -hmm. is like, you're not like you're, you are here to make us look bad. Uh, He knows he has to walk into this trap uh, to, to get this like exposure. But, uh, they're sort of congratulating themselves on this notion that like, and we are going to make an enemy of the United States and Israel look unpopular. And this is like brave, heroic work. But when it comes to this kind of story about like corporate malfeasance, uh, suddenly the juggernaut falls apart. Yeah. Uh, you know, you like all that bravado uh, completely dries up because one story makes people in power comfortable and like reassured 
and one story does not. And it is that story that they they collapse. By the way, shout outs to Philip Baker Hall. Uh, he's, he's got the the scene, the part of that scene, because like there's the little bit in there where Alpacino's like, so when's the air date? And he just he does this face, this little nod and face that yes. is such a non-answer. And it is like maybe one of the single best pieces of acting in the movie. It is such a I don't have an answer for this, but I'm going to be pretending to be very gung ho about this, just like you are, because I can't tell you yet that you're fucked. Yep. No, he's great actor. Uh, Always, always like just one of the all timer uh, character actors uh, and always brilliant in these sort of like grubby suit like roles, whether it's a professional gambler or Mm -hmm. some sort of corporate hack. He's. Or a guy who's bringing VHS to the porn industry. You know, he is just uh, he is he is a (laughs) tour de force all the time. Uh, One last. This was a stray thought, but I did put it to you uh, before the show. You know, I like to like map the uh, the connections in man's work. Mm -hmm. And dawned on me in this scene is we get this like sort of aside about uh, Wigan speaking Japanese and like being really into uh like japanese culture having worked there and such man isn't necessarily like champing at the bit to net like it's not that he finds japan a fascinating subject right Mm -hmm. but i think he finds like white dudes who really like understand japan and like basically can like inhabit that society he finds that shit fascinating neo like, this was is like- made for michael mann totally like the thing is like yeah like he will never make a movie about sun Tzu, but he will make a thousand movies about guys who own the art of war you know like that is <laughs> that is definitely the thing he is focused on is white resolute middle-aged men who have maybe taken on Eastern philosophy as a sort of, if not an affect, then just a big part of their personality. His first episode of Tokyo Vice is like, whoa, look at this badass taking a language test in Japan for a newspaper. Uh, Well, wonders never cease. It is the cool, like, it is, like, I was was sort of joking with you, but, like, for him, like, equally cool. James Khan shoving a thermal lance through like 12 inches of steel and passing a Japanese language test. I'm sorry, by their you Wall cannot Street put Ansel Elgort and James Khan in the same sentence. I can't do it. I just can't accept it. <laughs> I didn't sign up for it, but Michael Mann took us here. <laughs> uh, what 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 can you do? Um, the the thing that sort of that does unlock the K, the the way for to get Wygand on the air is. Uh, the lawsuit in Mississippi being helmed by Richard Scruggs. And we get another. He passes through this movie, a man protagonist, a man, cool guy. It's not his movie. So you only get hints of how awesome he is. And we get this from the, from the jump with the completely unnecessary plane scene. God, when we meet Richard Scruggs, he's calling, he and basically, he gets on the phone with Lowell Bergman while he's piloting his jet. Uh, and then Bergman is like, hey, you sound like shit. Can you land and call me back on a real phone? And that's it. We Jet will not be seen after this. But we, what we've seen is enough. Scruggs is a pilot. He wears aviators and he's competent. There's a couple of bits like that. Like there's there's definitely the plane scene, which is very much we need to introduce that these are the kinds of lawyers that would take on the tobacco industry. How can we? 
emphasize that gravitas. Oh, wait, let's just put them on a damn airplane that they're piloting. Uh, there's another shot in there not too long after they have the phone conference with him that is completely disconnected from anything else in the movie. And I'm not really sure why it's like that. Like, there's a shot that I, they have the phone conversation, then they cut back, I think, to Lowell for a little bit. And it's and, them walking back on the tarmac. Yeah, it's just them walking back on the tarmac, and it's like two seconds long, and then it cuts to something else completely unrelated. I don't know how that ended up in the final movie. It doesn't it almost do feels anything. Like it's, it almost feels like they forgot to cut it out. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely, because they don't, they don't go anywhere. They are Nowhere. Now, they're, yeah. Their scene is done. Why it's are you very, getting back it's very confusing. Chat? Unless it's to imply they have so much juice that they landed for the phone call and they're going back out. Like, maybe, I think that, maybe that was it. It just doesn't come across right away that way. Mm -hmm. It feels like there was supposed to be a scene there and then it just doesn't happen. Well, there's always so, this incredible moment where it's like, okay, we're in Mississippi and, you know, you're a liberal NPR coastal elite northern audience watching this movie. These guys are cool rednecks. They're mm -hmm. not like the Mississippi you think of. These fly, these guys mother fly motherfucking Learjets. <laughs> yep. <laughs> and like, it really does feel like, okay, we need to set these guys up as cool rednecks. And it's just like, Jesus Christ. There's, but there's like, a I, number. You kind of do for like the audience at this time oh, in 1999. Like, it helps that they are cool. Yeah, the like, casting like, is perfect. By the way, Confiore and, and Bruce cool. McGill are absolutely flawless as these two characters. They are like, like again, sometimes dudes do indeed rock. Yeah, and these guys do. Uh, but but I also think like genuinely that Scruggs in particular gets one of the best scenes and like the best speech in this movie uh, where Wygand goes down there to testify. And along the way, he's ambushed by a process server. The stakes are getting really high as possible that he will not be able to go home to Kentucky uh, after this. Um, and Scruggs tells him, I understand what you're going through. It's the first time anyone has actually, like, he's tried to get this from Lowell, and Lowell basically, like, when asked for compassion, Lowell's response is, fuck you, do the right thing, uh, give me the story. Scruggs tries to empathize and relate to where he is coming from, and what's funny is, despite the fact this is a guy who, like, his career has clearly uh, left him flush, uh, he's literally a high-flying attorney, uh, he also does seem to understand what Yan is going through uh, as he outlines in the speech we're going to play for you right here. I know what you're facing, Jeff. And I think I know how you're feeling. In the Navy, I flew A6s off carriers. In combat, events have a duration of seconds, sometimes minutes. But what you're going through goes on day in, day out, whether you're ready for it or not. Week in, week out. Month after month after month. Whether you're up or whether you're down. You're assaulted psychologically. You're assaulted financially. Which is its own special kind of violence because it's directed at your kids. What school can you afford? How will that affect their lives? You're asking yourself, will that limit what they may become? You feel your whole family's future is compromised held hostage. I do know how it is. 
we might have alluded to this moment earlier in a different episode of Manhunting, but I think the thing I love about it is that this is kind of a Michael, a classic Michael Mann character in some ways, talking about the different types of courage and like the type of courage that Michael Mann tends to not make many movies about in, in some ways, which is like the sort of sustained civic courage it requires to do the right thing in systems like ours. And I love, I love this speech where he sort of acknowledges that, you know, we often tend to think of like bravery and courage in terms of crisis situations that are measured over the course of, you know, seconds or minutes. And what Wygant has ended up with is this protracted like siege and it doesn't relent. And that bit about the terror he has for his kids in all this, I think it's it, like, it's a brilliant speech. You can see like the gratitude Russell Crowe, uh, brings across in his response to it at like, actually, this is exactly what I'm feeling and trying to navigate. Um, it's, it's, it's a brilliant scene, but I also think it is sort of a brilliant commentary on the type of heroism that is really easy to, or, or bravery that's really easy and compelling to make movies about. And then what's, what actually can make the world a meaningfully better place and what that requires and how much drudgery it is. Yeah, it's, I don't know, man. Like, I just, everything about this movie, just, it, like, it's all very heavy, but, like, it's it's done in such a way that, like, it's a two and a half hour movie that does not, like, it, it did not have me feeling like I was sitting there watching, you know, just, like, people trudging through the worst circumstances for two and a half hours. It's paced in such a way and it's acted in such a way that it all feels like it just kind of flies through everything, even when... You are sitting there watching like 10 goddamn minute scenes where, you know, people are just exuding the virtues of courage and, you know, what it takes to do the right thing and all this kind of stuff. I don't know, man. Like, I just. I feel bad that I did not watch this movie more times before I before yeah. we did this podcast, because it is it is. I don't know, man. There's something really special about it. I think. For me, it's also probably hitting differently that like I'm older than I used to be, right? Like sure. I'm much I understand a guy like Wygand so much more than I would have 15 years ago. Right. Yeah, like at, at 15, 15 years, years ago, ago, I would have exclusively looked at him through the lens of my dad, who, yep. you know, is was not a it, it did not work in the same field, but definitely had a very similar type of corporate job, had a very similar kind of like, I am taking this job so that we can have this kind of family life, that kind of thing. But now, you know, you can kind of understand a little bit more, or at least I can understand a little bit more about, like, the actual choices that go into things like that and the sort of, you know, the sacrifices and, you know, ultimately the compromises you have to make in order to to make those kinds of lives happen. Quick aside, um, <laughs> so Scruggs ended up going to jail on a lot of corruption charges. Mm-hmm. Um but I think given what we've seen in the legal system, so what he got busted for doing is bribing judges. Uh, he was bribing judges for like favorable rulings. Uh, mm -hmm. And they ended up, he, get, he ended up getting stung uh, once a judge sort of alerted U.S. attorneys to the fact that this was going on. And he ended up being disbarred, going to jail. So some of the characters you sort of look at, look at though, you look at this like CV, and it's like, 
even knowing that this guy seems cool as shit this mm-hmm. this guy this guy was a fucking beast at class actions against people who'd like hurt tons of workers and like people in the south and was just terrifying to corporations and i wonder those are the only times he had to pay a little money to grease the wheels. He just got caught or was part of getting those rulings and standing up for people who needed it, knowing which wheels needed greasing. Uh, because you look at a movie like this and it sure feels like, oh, there's corruption throughout the system and navigating that is going to be necessary doing anything. Well, yeah, and they frame them so much as these crusading lawyers, you know, like this this notion that they are. You know, not quite. I don't know if it's like quite Aaron Brockovich level, but it is definitely like, hey, we are here to do a public good through the power of, you know, the the civil legal system. And, you know, Bruce McGill gets that one bit where he fucking where they're in court giving the deposition and he like has his big, you know, sort of like you're going to goddamn shut up and you're going to let me, you know, depose this yeah. witness. You can't stop us, you know, to the to the tobacco companies, lawyers. They're so framed as these do gooders that to know that Scruggs was also operating on that level is you know it, it's interesting that the movie decides to skirt around that really to kind of not even give you the possibility that like hey like weingar again there is there is something under the surface there that is not flawless it's not shiny I'm not like sure been busted yet yeah maybe because he that wasn't until much that was until like like you know i think it was katrina when that came out okay yes, so that was much yes. later. So yeah okay that was, all right but but yeah, like but I will say this, uh, you know that play that that house where they uh where Wygan is like waiting to figure out what he wants to do here? Uh with the uh Gustavo uh oh, what's it, what's his name? The guitarist um that is featured in The Last of Us, Gustavo Centavolo. Um but that house was Scruggs, like that beautiful, like uh, <laughs> mansion by yeah. the sea uh, was was Scruggs. He let them shoot, uh, you know, at at one of his many, many mansions. Um, so, like, yeah, this is like very well healed uh, attorney presented as a crusading uh, lawyer. But also, yeah, we now know was also like some of the sausage was made in unsavory ways uh, but the headshot of him on his wikipedia page no. no you should look up the richard f dickey scruggs uh wikipedia entry because his headshot is incredible it's it's just he's got this asshole smile oh, yeah. that like he just knows <laughs> yep yep <laughs> And I don't know how much like he edited his own Wikipedia because like I, I, who knows? Because there's absolutely parts of this that are like. And while he was in Journey, uh, while he was while he was in jail, uh, you know, he was working with nonviolent offenders, helping them get their GEDs, uh, looking at like, uh, it, but it is possible this dude was just it, is just straight awesome, and and he just knew that people needed to get fucking bribed. I mean, that's the thing. It's Mississippi. Like the it's, most unbelievable part of this movie, which I mean, it's true. So it's it's shocking in its own right. But the most unbelievable part of this movie is the idea that a Mississippi attorney general would file lawsuits that would actually benefit the citizens of Mississippi or anywhere else. Well, and the thing is, you can already feel that worm turning because at the end, the governor starts suing the AG yeah. right. to stop the lawsuit. And so, yeah, this moment where you get any sort of notion of uh, like that politicians 
in each party might have enough loyalty to the people they represented to like push these cases uh, against the interest of corporations. That moment is closing. It's closing fast. Yeah. Uh, that part of what McGill's getting at with his rant is like, listen, I know that you own the tobacco belt. Yeah, I understand that there's like three, three, four states where you basically own the entire legal system, but this ain't one of them. Uh, and we're, we're going to mop the floor with you assholes. And it's great. Uh, but actually, like what's happened sub- subsequently to this in a lot of ways is the lopsided battlefield has tilted even further, uh, you know, toward, toward the interest. And you just don't have uh, characters like this uh, sort of standing up for for everyday people. Um can we actually take so, a moment for Comfiore's accent being the only one that holds its place? It sure does. It stays in place the whole time. <laughs> Unlike just about everyone else in this movie. <laughs> He's very good. He does now, admittedly, he only has the one scene really to get through. Yeah, other than that, it's like one or two stray lines, and that's about it. But yeah, yeah but Michael is... Gambon can't even get through one. Mm-mm. No, no, he can't. Uh I mean, I don't know. Bruce McGill does a good Bruce McGill. Yeah, he's just doing the Bruce <laughs> I, McGill thing, but he's doing—he's you know, given a great platform for it. He's big. He's loud. Looks like he's about to stroke out at mm-hmm. any moment. It—it it rules. Uh, so the funny thing is, it feels like the—the the end of one movie, right? This is the moment where, like, roll credits. We did it. We nailed it. And the gut punch of this is: this is where things are going to get really bad. Uh, and yeah, it starts with. As you noted, uh, Don Hewitt is evasive when they begin preparing for their their victory lap with this uh, with the sixty minutes piece with the Wygand interview, um, and we understand why that is when we have two back to back meetings at CBS uh, that sort of outline what's going on. The first is if we have a sense that like the legal system is corrupt, it's Illogical corruption is embodied in Gina Gershon's uh, Helen Caparelli, who is the slick corporate lawyer up at BlackRock, who in the stratospheric conference room uh, toward the top of BlackRock overlooking Central Park, outlines to them CBS's growing fear of a new doctrine of tortious interference in which if someone wasn't planning on doing something illegal, like breaking a confidentiality agreement, and you convince them to do that, that you are liable for tortious interference. And as as everyone notes, but that is the nature of being a journalist. And Caparelli's answer is basically, in so many words, what if not that? Now, she pretends like the, the other part this goes that this gets so ugly is that it is the corporate pretense that we're all on the same team here. Like, listen, you're getting it. You don't need to worry. This isn't that far advanced. We're just flagging that this this is in the wind. Uh, and immediately, um, Bergman seems to detect something's wrong, begins doing some research. The other thing is we got a really interesting scene transition here, which is the scene ends with him framed against the windows overlooking uh, New York up in, uh, up, up in BlackRock. And then... We get the next scene, and he's still kind of framed against windows, but now much, much lower down, more to street level uh, in the news building in Don Hewitt's office, it looks like. But the other thing is, we're just going to be tight on his face through this entire next scene. This entire scene that plays out as 
his world is rocked as like 60 minutes is made to feel the the yank of the corporate leash. We're going to spend a lot of the scene basically like with the camera pressed up against uh, Pacino's nose effectively. And Pacino like and, and Bergman realizes that the thing that Caparelli wasn't getting across is that CBS badly wants to be acquired and a open lawsuit against Brown and Williamson would uh, capsize them. But that's the corporate landscape. I think the thing that's really gutting here is um, this is also the moment where I realize he's alone and all his friends betray him. Uh, yeah. This is probably the part where I should disclose I am a former employee of CBS. So, <laughs> you know, take that for whatever it's worth. Uh, obviously, this all happened long before I ever worked there. But uh, nonetheless, yeah, it is poor Stephen Tobolowsky having to play the hatchet man here. I love him as an actor, but God, there is just no more like just miserable guy in a suit who is trying to be friendly, trying to tell you in the friendliest, nicest way to go fuck yourself. You're not going to get what you want. Then he is here. And yeah, as as Bergman is kind of like rattling off like all this information about like, hey, I know about the sale. I know what you guys are up to. I know literally how much money you are going to make when this sale goes through. Everyone's just like, yeah, we're not going to help you like his boss is not going to help him. And even Mike Wallace, who he sits there and, you know, he's gesturing at him like, you know, obviously this man would never he would never. He does. And he says, well, no, I don't think we should. I think I think the story's done. Well, I'm with Don on this one. Yeah. Yeah. Which is like the saddest sentence anywhere in this movie. And. You know. I think that if there is any part of this movie that drags slightly, it is the moments after this where it is really dragging out the sort of the misery and depression that that Bergman is going through after this moment where he is fighting them against a compromised version of the story going up and, you know, still sort of like trying to maintain some kind of relationship with Weingard and, and you know, just uh, in case that, you know, something changes. But. You know, it's like it's understandable because this is this does feel like this was the moment where it all could have stayed fallen apart. Like there was definitely a version of this story where they never get back to it. They never find a way to get the full story on the air. Even the compromise version maybe doesn't make it on the air. Well, and there's so much heavy lifting to be done here because, first of all, they have to sketch out what's the compromised version of the story. It appears that they either redact the interview to the point it's unrecognizable or I'm not even sure I recognize the quote they're using is from the Wigand interview or if the implication is they're using somebody with much less interesting information as like this guy also had privileged information that's useless. But here we'll use him instead. Um, and then you have this weird flank attack coming in with the dossier on. Uh, on why on Wigand. Rip Torn showing up for a real sweaty couple of minutes <laughs> in this movie as the guy who is the the oppo research guy. Well, and I think something else coming across here is that eventually we see this guy sharing a chopper with Don Hewitt. And you realize that this fucked up like corporate PR firm that does these hit pieces is so enmeshed in the landscape of New mm -hmm. York media that they aren't even seen for what they do. Like that they they have a seat at the table, even though their job is to we see what they do, which is they are taking the interview with Wygan's first wife, where she is at pains to say, hey, he's not that bad a guy. Like, yeah, like we had some bad moments. Their marriage fell apart. But 
this like all played out basically like it should have. And he's like, I yeah, cut that part. Uh, like, like hit that part, editing it to like it, sort of the what people fear journalists do, mm-hmm. right? He is like doing uh, is taking words and twisting them, perverting them, uh, to basically do a hatchet job on Wygand. And when he feeds this bullshit dossier to like the New York press, they lap it up, even though like they know who he is. Uh, it's it's one of the most cynical parts of this movie, which is that like. Man looks at the workings of journalism at this point and the financial realities that undergird the business, and he sees, probably rightly, nothing but conflicts of interest uh, and deadly complacency with regard to the people that are allowed, like, privileged access. Well, there's an incredible quote from uh, the Entertainment Weekly Review of this movie that it's a good but far from great movie because it presents truth telling in America as far more imperiled than it is. Oh God. Which is just one of the most hilariously naive things that I've ever read ever. Oh yeah. That's, that, was that an Owen Gleiberman joint? I don't know. Cause the link is now dead. Yeah, of course it is. Cause again, nothing can stay on the internet for long, but God, yeah, like it's I I can very easily see a whole critical consensus forming around this of this movie just being too cynical, too, too, too mean to the institution of journalism, because, you know, obviously this was an isolated thing. There's no there's no conspiring force out there to try and, you know, to to undermine journalistic integrity and, you know, to, to change narratives to benefit the powerful, because that could never happen in America, not in 1999. Come on, we're in the Clinton it's, years. Everything's going great. <laughs> yeah, it, like this is one of those things where it is, in fact, like a deeply prescient movie because it's not only saying like, "Hey, this is where you are right now." Like this is these the these are the warning lights uh, on your on your on your right. civic health already, like in the red and yellow, uh, and nothing that bad has happened yet. Um, and boy, it's coming. Uh, you know, we 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 know what the media landscape is going to do, what the political landscape is going to do, uh, and media is instead going to choose bias, uh, to be a a lack of perceived objectivity to be the greatest crisis crisis facing it, uh, and and will like be redefine the truth as whatever you can get both sides to agree on. Uh, truth can be negotiated. Um, so that. Opposition research dump falls apart, but not before Wygand bullies the shit out of, uh, not before Lowell bullies the shit out of Wygand, uh, berating him for not being more honest and transparent. And it's like, I like that again. I'm not sure. I'm not sure that it comes like maybe, maybe a character needs to just come and fucking call him on it. But to me, it's pretty clear. This is Lowell at his worst. In all this, because it's like, one, you never were open to Wygand confiding in you at all. And two, this is your fuck up. All of this, it is like him basically being hung out to dry and everything Wygand feared is coming true. And what he does, he gets on the phone to scream at him about not being more forthcoming and not having made the right steps in advance to prepare for this. And you can see like there is a like I think it's in the car when they're they're having that first real heart to heart where he's like, 
you know, they're going to come after you. I need to know everything that they might possibly, you know, come after you about. And, or, and you know, he, he rattles off like the shoplifting charge and, you know, a couple of other things. But he leaves out, obviously, the first wife. He leaves out some other things. So, but, you know, the thing you can say is that as much as Bergman maybe told him the idea that, hey, these guys are going to come after you, I don't think he ever really went, or at least not as it's portrayed in this movie, he never really threw the gravity of what was about to happen at right. Weigart. Like, he he absolutely softballed it in a, to a degree because he knew, I think, that if he told him the real weight of yes. what was going to come down on him, he never would have done it. Boy, that is a great point. I don't think it comes across, but I do, like, my read on it, just as how he operates as a journalist is he can always say, well, I did tell you this was going to happen, but the other part of his job is just to like bring that fish on the boat. Yeah. And so and you gotta like, ease that's it. You got to ease it in. Yep. You can't, you cannot tell them, Hey, by the way, when this hits the fan, um, think of every, not just your worst moments, but also just the really cringe ones that you would rather the world not know about. Uh, yeah. Everyone in America is going to know about that. Um, but the other, there's a funny bit here. I love it that Christopher Plummer does a number on Mike Wallace, mm-hmm. <laughs> but his conviction is, his little peace offering to Lowell is that he gave a quote about like letting people know that CBS kind of gutted this episode that's going to air. And he's like, I mean, they're going to know. They're going to know they're not getting the full story. And obviously what he sees is CBS News runs a truncated quote that is literally just him going, yes, and just cut off and he whirls. And you see the realization hit where it's like, I don't have the juice I thought I did. Uh, Like I have lost control of the situation. I was trying to play ball. Uh, He turns on Caparelli. Uh, and put like does basically pulls rank as hard as he can. But like I've been uh, just been, because been running we work 60- at just because we work at the same corporation does not mean we are in the same can, line of work. Can we actually just insert the the scene where Mike Wallace says it gives you the right to edit me? God, yes! so good. <laughs> Where's the rest? Where the hell's the rest? You cut it. You cut the guts out of what I said. It was the time consideration, time? Bullshit! You corporate lackey. Who told you your incompetent little fingers had the requisite skills to edit me? I'm trying to band-aid a situation here, and you're Mike. too dim to... Mike. Mike. Mike? Mike! Try Mr. Wallace. We work in the same corporation doesn't mean we work in the same profession. What what are you going to do now? You're going to finesse me, lawyer me some more? I've been in this profession in 50 fucking years. You and the people you work for are destroying the most respected, the highest rated, the most profitable show on this network. It me. Uh, Yeah, it is. Look, I understand how you can get that high on your supply. I understand you little, you little piss ant. Who tells you you can edit my words? Uh. But in the end, the way this logjam is going to be broken uh, is that Lowell is going to decide to basically does a few things. This is alluded to really briefly 
but one to blow up the opposition research dump he reaches out to i guess it seems like it's implied these are friends from more, his more like radical days is jack paladino and sandra sutherland uh who are like opposite opposition researchers coming from like the left side of things who do like anti-corporate type work uh so he basically calls in like your aaron brockovich's for hire um and it's a small part but he basically has them do this as a favor he brings in like two celebrated uh like investigators to come and break up the uh wygan dossier uh just just out of the goodness of their heart um and they're they're able to do it like the story doesn't bear up under any scrutiny you see you see sutherland uh gets the story on the the time the cops are called on him immediately you see paladino discovers what the what actually happened in that uh like divorce case but that's the other embarrassing thing is a lot of papers were ready to run the opposition dump without scrutinizing it at all uh and it took two investigators like a day uh to to cause it to implode um the other thing that that bergman does is he turns into a leaker and lets everyone know about the civil war that's erupted inside cbs news over this episode and it sets up a really great scene uh plumber's best in the film which is that he bargains for a really good page placement in the new york times the inside story of what happened uh with the wygan segment and we see that story hitting the streets early in the morning. And the next thing we see is uh, Lowell answering a knock at his door in his hotel uh, at five in the morning. And Mike Wallace is there with some things to say. And let's listen in. How many shows have we done? Huh? Come on. How oh, many? Lots. <laughs> That's right. But in all that time, Mike. Did you ever get off a plane, walk into a room, and find that a source for a story changed his mind? Lost his heart, walked out on us, not one fucking time. You wanna know why? I see a rhetorical question on the horizon. I'm gonna tell you why. Because when I tell someone I'm gonna do something, I deliver. Oh, how fortunate I am to have Lowell Bergman's moral tutelage to point me down oh, the shining path to show please, me the way. Mike. Give me a break. No, you give me a break. I never left a source hung out to dry, ever. Abandoned. Not till right fucking now. When I came on this job, I came with my word intact. I'm gonna leave with my word intact. Fuck the rules of the game. Hell, you're supposed to know me, Mike. What the hell did you expect? You expect me to lie down? Back off? What, get over it? In the real world, when you get to where I am, there are other considerations. Like what? Corporate responsibility? Well, are we talking celebrity I, here? I'm not talking celebrity, vanity, CBS. I'm, I'm, I'm talking about when you're near the end of your life in the beginning. And what do you, what do you think you think about then? The future? In, in the future, I'm gonna do this, become that? What future? No. What you think is, how will I be regarded in the end? After I'm gone. Oh, along the way, I suppose I made some minor impact. I 
did it. Iran Gate and uh, Ayatollah, Malcolm X, Martin Luther King, Saddam, Sadat, etc., etc. I showed them thieves in suits. I spent a lifetime building all that. But history only remembers most what you did last. And should that be fronting a segment that allowed a tobacco giant to crash this network? Does it give someone at my time of life pause? Yeah. Mike, in my, you and I have been doing this together for 14 years. Where do you come down with, with Mike after hearing the scene? Like, I'm, I'm just curious your reactions to what he unloads there, what passes between these two men. It, to me, it is the most movie part of this movie like it is the most like build to the big you know like relationship defining moment between these two heavy hitters in in the story i wouldn't be surprised if it was manufactured out of whole cloth for the sake of the screenplay but you know it is a scene that i think it justifies its manufacturing because it is it's a great little moment where again you know this is where mike wallace one very believable he would be up at 4 30 in the morning uh he is very old and you know two like there's a it's a difficult emotional combination to pull off of being deeply disappointed, but also understanding that the th person who disappointed you did the right thing. And that feels like what he's trying to convey, where it's like he's not even really refuting anything that was said in the story, anything that Bergman did. He is simply trying to lay out for him why a person of his stature and a person with the kind of clout and reputation that he has would have done the thing that caused Bergman to do what he did and to give him some understanding of what it meant to him to, you know, to essentially have his moment of weakness Splayed out for the public the way that so many other people's moment of weaknesses have been splayed out for the public over the course of his journalistic career. And, you know, that his reputation is the thing that he is trying to protect in the end. And whether or not he fully believes that he was justified in doing that, he never really communicates. But, you know, I think the slow, solemn walk away without asking for an apology or anything is maybe the actual recognition of, yes, I fucked up but also I am not going to just come out and say that. And it's a great little scene. Like it's a great little moment and it is, you know, it's, it's, it's vital. I think to understanding where, how we get to the ending that we do and, you know, realizing that there is no really any repairing that relationship after it's done. But at the same time, you know, the other thing about this is that yes, in retrospect, it is like the most obvious thing in the world that the person who ask these people to do these Herculean tasks to fucking upend their lives, destroy themselves, you know, to leak things and to tell their stories on, on this show ultimately finally realizes that he has to do the same thing. The only way he will get this truth out there. And the only way that he will justify what he did to, to Weingard 
is he has to do it himself. He has to finally, you know, put himself on the line and his reputation on the line and tell the actual story of what happened. Obviously, the consequences for him are not going to be nearly as bad. He's he has this, you know, multi-decade career. And if he's fired from CBS the next day, it doesn't really matter to him anymore. But at the very least, he has to at least get over the hump and make that gesture. Otherwise, he will never be able to actually solve this problem himself. It's such a filmic thing, but it is it is the only way this story could end. It it's really funny because like it reminds me of like this story. There's this story about like the making of Johnny Mnemonic, where Keanu Reeves went into William Gibson's trailer and was like, I don't think this character is sympathetic. And like William Gibson's like, okay, hold on. I'm gonna I'm gonna fix this. And he writes the I want room service monologue. And where where Keanu Reeves gets on a trash pile and just screams about how he wants room service and how his life is not the way it is supposed to be. And we kind of get this moment from like Mike Wallace where he is, he's kind of being a petulant child throughout this whole movie. Yes. Because he's Mike Wallace and it's not supposed to be this way for him. And like, you know, he is like in there with, you know, with, with Bergman and he's just like, you know, it wasn't supposed to be this way for me and it's not going to be this way for me. And I'm going to die going out on top because that's just what I need to do. Not as the guy who killed CBS. But like, again, I think about the, 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 how, you know, Bergman has to give this up. Like it is, it is, you're right. Like you're 100% right. This is such a movie scene where, you know, because this movie is as much about like Lowell as much the central character of this movie as, you know, uh, why again, like, you know, it's, it, this is like heat again, where we have these two characters that are mirroring each other. Um, I just realized I've been calling him Weingard for the last like half hour. It's Weigand. <laughs> yes. Yes. It's, it's like, we, it was weird. Cause you had it right. The first like third of the show. And then yeah. you're like Weingard slowly yeah. just cool. trailed away. Yeah. Like, uh, like Cato, no bells on that one though. Like Obama um, saying Puerto Rico, mm-hmm. but um, so, I think the the other thing I love in this scene is that his motivation isn't money. It is like you know, as you pointed out, Thea, it is this dread of being the one who, because of your overreach, you destroyed CBS and CBS News. Uh, that your legacy is going to be you brought down this company and that that fear is fundamentally uh, what what paralyzes him throughout this film. But at the same time, I think the thing that I find really trenchant about it, and I, I don't think I'd have, I'd have been able to put it into like quite these words really into the last few weeks of like discussion of like modern democratic leadership like why can't they respond to the various crises that are arising and it's because fundamentally a lot of them are institutionalists and they think the institutions they've spent their lives in and serving and building are good and need to be protected but what they don't realize is that if the institution is sick and rotting then the thing the way you protect it is by breaking like cutting out the cancer and mm-hmm. breaking up the parts that are already starting to like fall into disrepair and like executing a renovation or a surgery on them and the trap they fall into. And this is the trap that, that uh, Mike Wallace has fallen into here is thinking that the institution shambling onwards as a corrupted shell of itself 
is better than it going out in a blaze of glory. Are and you that, sure? Are you sure though? Are you sure that like we shouldn't just reach across the aisle and like make gestures toward <laughs> the cancer? Are you sure we shouldn't befriend the cancer? Maybe the cancer is only this way because uh, we're so we're so, we're so sure the cancer is bad. Uh, maybe if we're nicer to it. This is kind of a funny like you know, you bringing up the institutionalization thing here is really interesting because one of the things I think is very funny about this movie is. You know, I know that a number of people listening to this podcast are not going to have a context for 60 minutes as being 60 minutes. No. Right. You need this movie. This movie requires 60 minutes being 60 minutes in a, in a, in a number of ways. Like, it needs to be the fucking thing, which, like, I remember growing up, like, it was the fucking thing. And CBS totally. was a big deal. And even CBS at the time wasn't as big of a deal as it was. Like, you know, we get the, you know, we betrayed Edward R. Murrow's legacy. Like, the, like, you know, my dad watching this had a much bigger connection to CBS News as a thing and an institution than, like, I did. But even I had like, you know, wow, 60 Minutes like did this. That's fucked up because 60 Minutes is fucking the news. That's journalism. I and this movie is kind of like, mm, it's all money somewhere. Well, and that's so the funny thing is, um, it's weird, actually. Like, I think uh, the next podcast, Troy and I are going to record over on 3MA. We're covering Quiz Show and Good Night and Good Luck. <laughs> um but the One funny thing is good, films. good night and good luck is a, a real direct like it is the insider but during the mccarthy years yeah. yeah and it is basically making the same argument of like hey this institution of tv news uh is rotten from the start because the commercial interest is going to undercut it at every turn you think you can make peace with it but ultimately you can't and you will not see until the chips are down the invisible like boundaries that are on what is acceptable for you to say and reveal. Uh, and so to an extent as well, when you hear that line is also ironic because on the one hand, yes, yeah, 60 minutes was the, the elite of TV, TV journalism, like news magazine format. It is the heavy investigative artillery to the nightly news is, uh, you know, basic, basically like updates across beats and finding gruesome B-roll and human interest to run. Uh, but 60 Minutes was like the news you need to hear, the stories that need telling. This is where, where it all happens. But, you know, the the history of of TV news is, is often that, well, there, the constraints are always greater than you think. Uh, and the uh, the degree to which you're allowed to be confrontational uh, and iconoclastic was always more prescribed uh than you think but it's just that both wallace especially but bergman as well really did think well us being here is making sure that this this all stays on the level and continues fulfilling its mission uh and yeah like wallace cannot see that making this deal means that cbs like if this didn't if lowell did not do this to force cbs's hand CBS News would be dead. Uh, it just wouldn't. It wouldn't be like public knowledge that it was dead. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's a it's a great scene. Uh, and with that, the logjam kind of breaks. I passed over one thing, which is um, while Lowell is on vacation, the the 
the bullshit like edited uh, segment goes to air. Uh, Wygant has his crisis in his hotel room and Lowell finally reaches out and realizes that uh, they, they finally do sort of get to that place that I think Wygant at various points has wanted them to, which is sort of being each other's confidants in part because Lowell now realizes that Wygant is the only authentic person he knows. Uh, but one thing that is here in the scene is Lowell realizes Wygand has been staring at the Brown and Williamson HQ dwelling on just the havoc these people have wreaked on his life. And it's not openly stated that he's thinking of like shooting up the joint. Um, But Lowell detects that there might be really dark ideation happening Mm -hmm. around that. And I think if you look at man's body of work, like, where Wygan is at is approaching the James Conn and thief point of I have nothing and people like this will not be deterred. The system allows them to inflict harm with impunity. And what is left to me, but to wield direct violence against them uh, to, to bring this, to bring this home to them in the way that their goons brought it home to me and my family. Um, and the day is saved by Lowell being here and sort of saying, you know, you're I don't have many heroes left. And they, they sort of do have that moment of connection uh, finally. But but I do think, you know, in that scene, I think you also get at. Just as a matter of course, man is so cynical about rightly like justifiably cynical, maybe realistic is, is the correct way to put it about like. What our legal systems do and who they protect and who they allow to be exposed to harm uh, that like the notion that Wygand is having these dark thoughts isn't necessarily or doesn't necessarily mean to imply that like, you know, Wygand has lost it. Uh, what he has lost is any hope of like peaceful uh, legal redress. Mm-hmm. Um, Lowell manages to save the day by getting the report out there uh, after how good a journalist is he? Just in passing, he stumbles onto the Unabomber story uh, and just figures out that he's about to be arrested. Give you a three-hour heads up. Uh, the the segment the segment goes to air. Uh, he passes on the the Unabomber tip to CBS News, and sort of with with all flags flying, he tells uh, Wallace, who's ready to make amends and move on from this uh, chapter, that yeah, he's he's hanging it up uh and and striking out and it's it's not quite the wilderness of npr but it is public broadcasting uh nevertheless as as lowell heads to a career at frontline uh but that is that is sort of where the the story ends which is lowell taking off uh from from hq uh you know with his with his integrity intact and having you know burned down this the cbs career uh in defense of his vocational imperatives uh there was one last question that y'all raised before we recorded and i think it's a good place to to end it <laughs> who does this movie think is cool does mm. does we it's does it think does it at least think wygand is cool no yeah i, I mean this movie, so. this movie thinks this movie thinks lil bergman is the coolest motherfucker on earth yeah absolutely i mean this this movie makes him you know, I mean, he's he is like, you know, God, he's he's not even um, 
you know, Jack Crawford in Manhunter. He's not, he's not James Conner Thief. He's like fucking, like we, we make him into like Michael Douglas in like Black Rain. Like he is such a fucking, you know, hardcore. What a fucking kind of, ending. Like, yeah. <laughs> Like, yeah, he he perp walks Big Tobacco through the yep. newsroom of yep. CBS, and everyone stands up and bows. It's like it's it's like it's just so ridiculous how cool it thinks it's fun. Bergman is as as, yeah. it, as much as the movie does paint him as a flawed person, as a single minded person. It is absolutely fawning in its desire to portray that as the most noble and cool ass shit imaginable in the world of journalism. Well, he's like, he's like, you know, he's like fucking Jason Bourne with a cell phone. Yes. Like, Jesus he's, he's Christ, doing that's Bourne Noel shit. Bergman. <laughs> yeah. And he's, he's doing like, you know, like instead of like taking a motherfucker apart or like, you know, assembling a sniper rifle on like, you know, a hill, like he's doing like all of that, but like with cell phones and like legal pads and, and video editing suites. And it's just like, <laughs> you've turned, you've turned, you know, uh, a, a newsman into a serial killing super spy. Yep. Like the Michael Mann of news producers uh, is just out there racking up a body count of, yeah. of and evildoers. Like, and that is kind of like, you know, in a way, like that is like the thesis this movie starts with. And that is the thesis this movie kind of punctuate. Like it just kind of perforates it as we go along, just slowly letting the air out of that, but still letting Lil Bergman maintain his cool. Yeah, and, and to the original question, it does not the movie does not think Jeffrey Wigand is cool. They think in the end, I think that that Jeffrey Wigand did a noble thing, mm-hmm. that he was a person who weathered the storm, came out the other side of it, probably a better person, if not in a better lifestyle. Uh, and maybe Jeffrey Wigand was into cool things like learning Japanese. But I think as a personality he's a little too remote and a little too self-absorbed in the wrong way for Michael Mann to think he's cool. But I will say this. I think the movie admires him more than any other character. Like, I think the film, like the weird thing is, I think because it doesn't understand him in the way that it understands like your typical Michael Mann protagonist, it ends up more admiring of him yes. because his integrity is still kind of a closed box to this film like it came from somewhere i don't think it necessarily identifies fully where it came from right like does he do this out of spite out of like duty as a scientist is it as his code is it all those people that tobacco is hurting that like are evoked repeatedly throughout this film doesn't have an answer and i think that integrity and sort of the mysteriousness of where it comes from is where the film ends up finding uh this guy who does all these things and sees all these things through despite being deeply uncool and none of the glamour sort of uh, showered on Bergman uh, that makes him kind of an admirable, compelling figure. Um, So yeah, like this movie, like I think it's terrific. Um, I am sort of struck by, by how well it stacks up against the other movies we've been watching. Um, I absolutely think it is, uh, you know, one, one of his best. And yeah, I think like it's one of those things that maybe you, 
I certainly find I, I understand more as I get older and my place in life sort of converges with some of this, this cast of middle-aged characters. Yeah. And also <laughs> just, again, I, as Dia mentioned, the prescience of it, you know, like yeah. in the end, like this movie ended up being right about a lot of very rotten things, both in the world of journalism and in the way that corporate America, especially the darker corners of corporate America can kind of run roughshod over anything. And Whatever might have been viewed as cynical in 1999 almost in a way feels quaint now, but also very correct. Like it feels correct, but it also feels like it's like, oh, you didn't think far enough ahead. Not nearly. No, I mean, I I couldn't stop thinking about like 9-11 is coming, right? Mm -hmm. Like 9-11 is two years after this film. And I do kind of because I don't think Michael Mann's ever made a movie about like the 9-11 era, right? I, I don't think he's ever like dealt with it not specifically yeah i think he's talked around it but i i I think like he sort of returned to crime films films throughout like that era um well it's so funny because post 9-11 this is a ridley scott movie yeah that's probably right (laughs) yeah but i i am like i think because man has such like a sociological and institutionalist interest in like explaining circumstances for characters and just where America is at. I'm curious like what his like directly topical 9-11 film would, would look like. Oh, um, but he went a different direction and we'll get to that next month. Uh, he continued to work in sort of uh, telling true stories and looking at parts of American history uh, with the biopic Ali, uh, which is, in part, in its latter half, an, an adaptation, uh, just a dramatization of When We Were Kings, uh, <laughs> like just 100%. Uh, it is like that documentary ruled yeah. be a good movie. Uh, but then the other thing it is attempting to do is like, what if I made my own Malcolm X, but by shooting it in the background of the career of Muhammad Ali? Uh, that like it is a really ambitious work that is trying to get from its opening moments, basically trying to explain the sixties and seventies, the civil rights move, movement, and the sweet science. I leave it to uh, to to you and us next month to uh, des- decide whether or not man pulled it off. Uh, but until then, thank you so much for listening. Hope you enjoyed the show, and thanks for supporting us on Waypoint Plus. Peace.